Multimedia gaming is how old? All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Encyclopedic knowledge. A lifetime of giblets. And paint your python. All this and more coming up on today's show. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Hello, Chris. It's just you and me this week. It's like the good old days. <laughs> the good before, old days. Well, we will miss Dave, Dave obviously. <laughs> yeah. Do we know what Dave's doing this week? Taking a break, I think, basically. Just taking a break. Yeah. Okay. We well, hello, should. Dave, if you're listening. Um, hope you're having a nice, relaxing day. Uh, it's It's been a busy week for me this week. I am still working on the, the building of the lab at the cave, so I've I've constructed stud walls well with richard's help uh, i've clad uh four stud walls now um, and the flooring is actually arriving in 30 minutes time so as soon as we're done with the show i'm going to rush off and carry up 400 kilograms of flooring wow. um, <laughs> it's, it's a busy old <laughs> week but i can't wait to show you guys it um, who knows maybe i'll even do a, a, a this week in retro from it one week set my camera up there so that's pretty much all I'm doing. And you see me sat here in video on, in a yellow jumper. Underneath it all, I've got my work clothes on. I've got my work trousers on. I've just thrown a jumper on to look respectable for the show today. How's your week been, Chris? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad a week. Um, you put me to shame because I just stare at things like my garage I want to do up and I just stare at it and I ignore <laughs> I ignore the enormity of the project and just yeah, uh, settle back into um, how it looks now, which is a right mess. But anyway, um, but yeah, I've... You know, you know sometimes how you, you go, you're just ready to go to bed, and you just go, "Let's have a quick flick through YouTube and see if there's one last video that's oh, yes. maybe worth watching." Yeah, <laughs> I was doing this. When was it? Saturday night. Saturday night. And uh, what happened to come up on my feed was the fact that um, Tony, or as most of us know him, Oz Retro Comp, happened to be doing a live stream. So he he'd, uh, decided to do this. He doesn't do many. And I was fortunate enough to catch, and I'm not going to embarrass the poor guy because he's a good bloke, <laughs> but a couple of years ago he did a very impromptu one, and I'm not going to give you the details, but I found it hilarious. And this was very similar, um, but he'd done it because his, his YouTube channel has been going for three years now. So Oz Retro Comp, you'll see him in the comments of um, the subreddit quite a lot, and he, he feeds us some quite good stories as well a lot of the time. So really interesting guy. Um, but during the live stream, um, he was just giving some, you know, sort of, you know, conscious flow of, of random stuff, uh, but he happened to start talking about things like this week this week in retro and how much he really enjoys the podcast oh, um, nice. said similar comments about my channel as well. Um, our channels are fairly similar sizes, um, but he also, he got onto the topic of yourself, Neil, and he just, I had to make mention of it. I hope you don't blush, but he just could not say enough positive stuff. Oh. And yeah, it was all really good. Really, <laughs> really you, good Tony. stuff. Yeah. It must be. Thank you, Tony. It must be hard for you, Chris, to actually catch live streams in your time zone in the in the retro sphere because it seems yeah. the retro hobby is very imbalanced in terms of geographic locations. A lot of US stuff, a lot of European stuff. There are some great Australian channels, Mr. Lurch, mm. Oz Retro Comp, yourself, you know, lots of people down there. But, you know, it's pretty imbalanced. So I don't yeah. imagine you get many live streams. For example, when I live stream, it must be difficult for you to 
jump on those. Yeah, I think I've been on one, if not two, but one of those was because you'd purposely done it at a time that would work oh, for okay. slightly yeah. more countries. But And I can totally understand why you won't do that too often because then that obviously screws up your weekend. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's a it's a hard thing to, to balance. But, yeah, um, sometimes on a weekend I might catch an American live stream because obviously as I'm waking up, they're getting ready to think about going to bed. Um, mm-hmm. So sometimes, sometimes that'll happen. But yeah, UK and Europe ones forget it most of the time because they're generally Saturday nights. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is just quite fun going on to Twitch sometimes and just typing in, you know, Atari or whatever mm. and seeing what comes up. You, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, even if it's only one or two people watching this, you know, or no people watching a particular streamer. It's nice to drop in and just see people doing their thing, enjoying their hobby, regardless of, you know, they don't care if people are watching or not. They're just doing their yeah. thing and sharing it. And um, I do enjoy that. Anyway, That's speaking good. of doing our thing, it's time for housekeeping. I'm not sure how we handled Dave's housekeeping without Dave. So oh. um, let's, we'll, we'll do a jingle <laughs> and we'll figure it out. <laughs> can't do a scottish accent not without insulting <laughs> many many people <laughs> okay we won't we won't go there with the scottish accent okay so um in housekeeping this week um oh, i feel naughty doing dave's housekeeping no um, a, 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 a couple of people recently in comments have asked us about guests uh, so people have really enjoyed some of the guests we've had on recently and a couple of people have said you missed an opportunity or you should have interviewed them. Um, and I just wanted to clarify, I think we have said this before on the show, but I just wanted to clarify, we're not an interview show. We're much more interested in hearing people's opinions. A lot of the guests we have um, have appeared in other podcasts, have, have, have given their life story, and it's quite easy to find those. So just to give things a slightly different angle, we just like to hang out with them and hear their opinions on different topics. So that's kind of what we do. So we won't be changing and we won't start interviewing guests anytime in the near future um but thank you for you know all feedback is is greatly uh, gratefully received so we did mull it over um we are now at a massive 39 patrons for the show thank you so much to everybody who offers their support i'm so glad that we can be a part of your week a lot a lot of comments i see are people saying that we've become kind of part of their weekly routine a part of their saturday morning while they have their breakfast or do their chores or whatever they're doing so whatever it is you're doing this morning while you listen to us hello i hope it's going well for you um that car won't wash itself (laughs) (laughs) um and we've hit another milestone in that we've just rolled over seven thousand youtube subs so lots of good news in housekeeping this week so thank you to everyone who subscribed on youtube of course we uh we reach far and wide on the different podcast channels youtube is just one small part of it so however you listen please do take time to either leave a review give us a thumbs up subscribe on youtube and just help us to grow the channel that's very much appreciated um so we have uh three new patrons this week chris did you want to say hi to our new patrons hi to Proteek, um anthony and glenn and i've just realized which glenn that is so thank you so much for your support yes glenn Fantastic. from crg so thank yep. you so much uh for Proteek or protech um, yeah protech probably protech yeah, yeah. So thank you so much for joining the uh, the growing army of twirlers. You are now twirlers, you'll be pleased to hear. Uh, and thank you, everyone. And here is to 10,000 subs. Fingers crossed. First up this week, we're celebrating a birthday. 
Oh, happy birthday, Rich. Um, but apart from oh, somebody yeah. else in the Discord, <laughs> um, we're celebrating a birthday of something most of us probably had, but possibly never used or at least not used it very much. So Ice Runner Origin kindly cross-shared a post in the subreddit from another group, alerting us to the fact that Microsoft Encarta is indeed now 30 years old. So released March 22nd, 1993, according to the post, or apparently, um, the, the post was shared. Uh, basically, it was just a screenshot, the post that was shared with us. So to refresh my memory, I've actually found a link to a short video by Nerve Gorilla um, of the 93 version of Encarta, and we'll put the link in the show notes as well um, to that video. It shows basically the launch tutorial, which is all voiced over, um, you know, which for the period was was pretty well done. Um, Encarta, of course, being a CD-ROM, you know, digital encyclopedia. I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but in case you're not, that's exactly what it is. The voiceover boasts how Encarta covers more than 90 categories and can also be searched, obviously, navigated um, via a timeline and, and all sorts of fancy things like that. Um Basically, you know, replacing the hard-banked, volume-based printed encyclopedias of old, you know, really what we were witnessing was um, a few things that we now take for granted, such as searchable, clickable, interactive digital text, often with cross-referencing and links, you know, within sections to other sections, audio voiceover in places, interactive digital images, embedded digital video, but not as a feature in itself, but as a supplementary piece of content with, with text surrounding it. The big thing, of course, is printed books fast become out of date. And while the, obviously the CD-ROM was a step in the right direction, you'd still have to wait for a new release to update any information that was, that was wrong. Uh, but it was kind of the precursor to what we have now. Only now it's all online and it's faster and it's it's often changed and updated without us even noticing it. And that's that's another topic in itself. Neil, do you remember playing around with Encarta? Uh, and were you on board with it as early as 93? Wow. 30 years of Encarta. That's gone far too quickly. That does make me feel a little bit old. Um, so, yes, I did use Encarta, but I, I grew up... Okay, let's go pre-CD-ROM. I grew up with a set of Encyclopedia Britannica uh, mm-hmm. encyclopedias. I think they were like handed down from my granddad or something like that. So they were pretty old by the time that I got them. But I was young. It was a set of encyclopedias. It never once crossed my mind to doubt the information that was in there, to ever think this oh, no. might be out of date by now. You know, this is this is the law. This is in a book on a bookshelf in a big hardback mm you know, leather bound book, this, everything about this must be true. Never crossed my mind that it might not be. And um, to support that set of encyclopedias, I also had something a lot of people may have had, which was the Reader's Digest World Atlas, which was a lovely big book. Um, It wasn't quite, you know, it wasn't A3, but it was, it was bigger than A4. It was a good sized book. Again, lovely green cover. Um, I think it was like a faux leather cover, but it felt posh to me (laughs) and lovely big full color atlas. Um, and I'm really ashamed to say that I absolutely loved that atlas. And then one day I was doing a school project and I needed a map and I actually got a scalpel and cut a map <laughs> out of that atlas and stuck it into my textbook. No. <laughs> no. Looking back, that was a terrible thing to do. Yeah. But, I, you know, between those two books, I gleaned a huge amount of knowledge as a kid. You know, I would just lie on the floor, feet dangling, you know, waving in the air, reading through my encyclopedias, and I loved it. 
Now, in terms of a digital encyclopedia, I think I had to wrap my brains, but I think my first experience was probably the Hutchinson Encyclopedia, and that was on the Acorn Archimedes. Oh, wow. So in our school library, we had one Acorn Archimedes. Um, this was in an upper school. It wasn't my first school. So we had the library, very dusty, traditional library with the, the librarian sat at the desk with all the cards, you know, with all the book names on the, the Dewey Decimal System or whatever it was. Um, and then in stark contrast, sat next to her was this brand new Acorn Archimedes with an external CD-ROM drive. And the CD-ROMs had to go in a caddy. So you'd go through the ceremony of loading that up, clunk it into the drive. And um, I think it's probably the first CD-ROM I tried, certainly the first CD-ROM on uh, Acorn Archimedes. It was the Hutchinson Encyclopedia. And as you described there with the early version of Encarta, it was very much articles linking to other articles. So hyperlinks were very much a thing within this, within the text. But the sole mission of using this was to hunt down the the postage stamp sized video clips. You know, yes. you would look for the space shuttle launch. You would look for, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, Jesse Owen running 100 meters at the Olympics. You would look for wildlife, you know, all of these things. Uh, uh, it was like a treasure hunt for video clips, really. Um, and I enjoyed it. And I, I, I seem to think, Remember, even at a young age, my first impressions of using a digital encyclopedia was, okay, this is cool. The video clips are really cool, but it felt somewhat lacking. It felt like it wasn't complete compared to that set of encyclopedias on my shelf. Do you know mm. what I mean? It, yes. it felt almost summarized. I don't know. I don't know why, because the CD-ROM had the capacity, but they probably had to rush a product out. I don't know. But th th these were the very first encyclopedias. Now, the next one I tried was the very same one, the Hutchinson Encyclopedia on the Amiga A570 CD-ROM drive. So this was made for the CD-TV. And again, um, a lot of the images, I think, appeared in ham mode. So you just got a headache trying to look at them. Uh, it, it did have some video clips, which on an Amiga was impressive. But again, it felt slightly lacking. It felt like, you know, I still reached for the books. Mm, yeah, you know, I did. It didn't replace the books. So by the time I got to Encarta in, did you say ninety three? I think you said three. Yeah. By the time I got to Encarta on a PC, it wasn't quite as exciting for me. It wasn't new and fresh because I'd been using digital encyclopedias. But to its credit, it was far better to navigate. It felt far more complete, um, and of course, it used the Windows windowing system so it felt you know there was a bit more consistency to the ui compared to the others which were you know some of them felt like they'd been made in amos with these big clunky buttons <laughs> it was you know the encarta was much nicer to use so mm. um to its credit it was a very good encyclopedia but it wasn't its first so yeah it was really good but it also puts me in the mindset of this period where when encarta was coming out we were starting to dial up to go onto the internet. Some of us had been dialing into bulletin boards already, but that was a slightly different world. The internet, the World Wide Web, the information superhighway, it was all about information at this point. But for this early period, things like digital encyclopedias were in direct competition with the World Wide Web, if you think about it that way, because yeah. you, know, you could potentially find more information on the CD-ROM than you could on the web. Totally different world now. But it was that kind of interesting crossover period, yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 true. I got a similar background to yourself, except not. I was not into CD-ROM as early as yourself at all. Um, so my memories, yeah, definitely. We had this. All I all I can describe them as it was the purple set of encyclopedias. I've no idea who wrote oh. them, where they came from, <laughs> but and they were quite thin volumes. I think maybe. <laughs> 
my first encyclopedia. Yeah, yeah, maybe something, <laughs> something like that. They actually made fantastic ramps for your matchbox cars, uh, you know, or, or tunnels for your for your scale electrics. So that's what I use these books for, Neil, most of the time. <laughs> Other than that, it was um, I would look up dinosaurs and I would look up planets, and they were definitely like like you say, if it's in a book, it's gospel, right? Yeah, there was nine planets, Neil. There were nine planets, and one of them was Pluto. <laughs> Oh, and so, yes, yeah. so I really struggled with this whole, no, we've downgraded Pluto. I'm like, how can you? It's in the encyclopedia. <laughs> there's, there's no way it's not a planet. For me, Encarta would have been the first um, interactive CD-ROM multimedia-based uh, encyclopedia that I played with, and it would have been probably 95 because I certainly don't remember having one on my 486 which is the first machine I, I put a, you know, back in the day when you, that was an upgrade that you added to a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I think it actually came as a pack-in disc with the Pentium 100 that I had. And I'm pretty sure that's how most people got their hands on Encarta was because it happened to come with all the discs that your computer came with, which is why I think some people probably didn't use it or certainly didn't use it very much. There were some impressive Encarta displays in the shops, though. Do you not remember the big boxes of Encarta oh, yeah. being stacked high and wide? Yeah. Um, so it was really pushed as this this multimedia world that was coming and a reason to buy a PC and upgrade from mm. um, other devices. And also Apple Macs, you know, they were well on board the, the multimedia train and they would have had their own version perhaps of Encarta. I don't know off the top of my head. Maybe not to start with, but certainly later on i'll have to look that up yes, in terms of the purple Google. set of encyclopedias i've just done a quick search and every purple there are there are multiple purple sets of encyclopedias but they're all children's encyclopedias so do you Oops. think you had like a maybe an osborne children's encyclopedia it's or something possible. like that it's if they were thin ones it's well quite i was possible, a child yeah. i was a child to yeah, be fair yeah. no, I'm, not, I was, I'm not criticizing yeah. i'm just trying been, to get to the bottom of what it was yeah i would have been only 22 years old no oh. <laughs> <laughs> no it would have been when i was about eight or nine years old i remember these books so yeah 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 so i mean what were your impressions of Encarta then were you impressed with it did it blow you away was it your first experience of multimedia multimedia is a bit of a funny thing in that period especially around the the windows 95 into 98 and and the early pentiums or late 486s early pentiums because multimedia was one of those things that almost always almost worked well enough does that make sense so you'd throw in your cd-rom and you'd yes you'd be greeted with some you know audio voiceover perhaps but it would always stutter because it would be going at the speed of your CD-ROM drive or whatever, or maybe you didn't have as much RAM in this machine that you'd bought off the shelf that you really needed to make this thing flow. Uh, And the same once you got to the videos, they were, like I said, postage stamp size, which was what we were used to back then. Um, And and again, they, they, they very rarely played smoothly, often because they wouldn't open in a pop-up window. In all honesty, I can't remember how Encarta did it, whether they were embedded within the text. Do you remember? Or, but I certainly remember every video I played on something like Encarta wasn't as smooth as opening just a standalone video in Windows right. Media Player. Do you know, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah. and I know, I mean, later on I dabbled with things like you know creating multimedia experiences in things like Macromedia Director, um, and that was certainly part of the challenge. Was you know, first of all, you had the the video proje- production of the video, making it a small enough resolution for computers of that period to play, and how many colors you used, and, and the compression, and all that kind of stuff. Then, if you're 
building this interactive element around it. How much RAM does that take up? What are the graphics of that? And because that can hinder the playback on on lower end machines. So you're sort of a balancing act. So was I impressed? Yeah, it's one of those multimedia experiences that you you sort of you want it to be really impressive, and then you realise it's just a whole heap of links to possibly some voiceover, possibly some video. And you've touched on a good point because I hadn't really thought about that. It really didn't feel as complete as the books. And mm. I think maybe there's that sort of discovery journey with books. And even now, I mean, my boys are avid readers and I offered them a Kindle ages ago and they wouldn't have a bar of it. They want the books on the shelves. They want that tactile experience. And that's the next generation. Do you know what I mean? So it's not us being old, moody old moody you know <laughs> um yeah <laughs> i had to think clear, carefully how i was going to end that sentence so maybe there is no end but you know what i'm saying you know old 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 men basically is what i'm saying yeah, it's not because of that it's literally yeah. because there's a difference in holding a book and flicking through and discovering the information rather than being spoon-fed it via a search engine do you agree Perhaps, and there's perhaps some contrast there between digital streaming of music and vinyl records. It's just mm. a nicer experience to have that physical product. Um, it turns out that Microsoft announced they were discontinuing Encarta in 2009. Now, there's a huge difference between 1993 Encarta and the final Encarta that came out. It certainly evolved massively. It had to compete head-on with the rise of the internet and information online. But... Um, in the uh, as of 2008 i'm reading here the complete version in carter premium consisted of more than 62,000 articles numerous photos and illustrations music clips videos interactivities timelines maps and atlas so it rolled the atlas into the encyclopedia as well and homework tools and it was available on the internet by yearly subscription or dvd or multiple cd roms so it did try to move into that internet internet subscription but how on earth does a subscription encyclopedia compete with something like Wikipedia? It's it, The writing was on the wall. But for a period, it was an important thing. I have to say, I don't remember looking back, sitting down with my digital encyclopedia to do homework. Did you ever no. use it for homework? Well, no, because no, by the time I was into that, I was at work, <laughs> funnily enough. Uh, so, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For me, yeah. you know, with, with Encarta 95. Um but but yeah. yeah, I think we've we've come a, we've stumbled across the same web page, Neil. Uh, in, in looking up, you're probably doing the same thing I was, which was trying to work out if there was a Mac version, and it doesn't say. So if anybody knows and they want to let us know in the subreddit or the comments, was there a Mac version of Encarta? Surely there would have been. Well, if not, you could have just subscribed to the online service and That's accessed it via your Mac. So, yes. but I'm sure there would have been. And there were, you know, the, the Mac had so many multimedia titles like it from the likes of companies like Dorling Kindersley. They did lots of lovely interactive, um, encyclopedic type things, such as programs about dinosaurs, Dorling mm. Kindersley's dinosaurs on the Macintosh and things like that. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Um, and I'm about to wrap up. A story, which is actually your story, Chris. So I shouldn't I be wrapping going up this story. <laughs> oh, I saw you going for that. Yeah. So, yeah, well, to simply wrap it up, happy birthday, Microsoft in Carter. Probably the most informative shiny drinks coaster ever made. Time now to remind you about our fantastic sponsors, Pixel Addict, who are so fantastic. Chris is going to tell you all the fantastic things about them. <laughs> I am. We never, ever forget to do the sponsorship slot, do we, Neil? Never. <laughs> um, it never has to be edited in afterwards uh, behind the curtain. But we are sponsored, thank you very much, by Pixel Addict Magazine. 
I now have two copies in my hand. And in fact, there were two copies on the shelf in one of the local shops. I spotted them on the weekend. So I was messaging certain mates that I knew might be interested to. How up to, to date down. were they down in Australia? The so anyway, we are sponsored oh. by Pixel. <laughs> <laughs> That's not their fault. It's, it's not their fault. No, it's the not their fault. It takes it's, a long no. time to get to Australia. And that is just the nature of getting British magazines in Australia. And we accept that over here. And I'm yeah. enjoying reading the Christmas edition in March. So uh, okay, it's the Christmas edition. That's fantastic. Here, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it apparently, so Pixel Addict uh, apparently comes out every six weeks, as we learned recently. <laughs> Um, it's a retro lifestyle magazine covering many systems from back in the day and also happily segueing into other aspects of, of days gone by. You can subscribe online or to digital only, or you can obviously subscribe to print-based. Or, of course, look out like I do all the time in your local newsagent. Or, again, just like myself, just go into your local newsagent and ask them to get it in if it's not there on the shelf. That's what I've done, and that's how I've now got a standing order in place, which is fantastic because once you've got a standing order in place, you can send your mum in on her shopping day to go and pick it up. Or um, your dad. So, or Someone. your dad, your mum or your dad or somebody else's mum or dad. Yeah. Anybody, random strangers, so long as they look like they're willing to pop into the newsagent. So do check it out at pixel.addict.media. I think that's the right address, Neil. That's it. Good. Chris, it's award season. Prepare the red carpet at the Game Developers Conference. They have been talking about the awards that they are announcing this year. In fact, by the time this show goes out, those awards will have happened. And they've announced who will be getting this year's Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, founded in 1988, the Game Developers Conference, or GDC, uh, well, back then, the, the video game landscape was very different. This first conference comprised of 25 people uh, in attendance in the living room of developer Chris Crawford. It's since evolved into a glitzy annual event with awards for such categories as innovation, narrative, social impact, as well as the expected best graphics, best audio, and best overall game, and a whole lot more awards besides. Now, it was listener... Old Computers 1969. Hello, thank you for submitting. I think this might be the first of your stories that we've picked, so we appreciate it. He shared the story on our subreddit. And um, in particular, he highlighted the Lifetime Achievement Award, which has been announced this year to John Romero. And I had a read into it, and I also wanted to point out another award, which I saw um, that was at the show, which was the Pioneers Award, which is being posthumously given to Mabel Addis. Hello, Gizmo, who's just joined me on the floor here and is scratching my chair. So sorry if you can hear that. I thought you had a poltergeist now, opening the door. <laughs> <laughs> um, John Romero, of course, you'll have heard of. Have you heard of him, Chris? John Romero? John, that uh, rings a bell. Rings um, a bell. Well, we'll get yeah. to him shortly. But um, Addis, you might need some background on. So she's considered to be the first female game developer by some as the author of a game called The Sumerian Game. Uh, this is a game from 1964. It was made for an IBM 7090 mainframe. And the game was a text-based simulation of civilization in 3500 BC, in which you do things like allocate workers and grain. So kind of resource management, if you like. And then you'd see the effects that your decisions had. Um, essentially really lighting a slow-burning fuse that would wind its way to city-building games that would come decades later. 
She helped to pave the way for game elements that wouldn't become mainstream for decades. That's a quote from GDC, from the organizers. They also say, among the innovations she helped conceive were game updates, in-game narrative experiences, and early iterations of what would become known as cutscenes, which in 1964 took the the form of photo slideshows accompanied by synchronized audio. We'll come on to that in a moment. Although I would perhaps argue that cutscenes came from movies <laughs> were inspired by movies but you know the first use of perhaps cutscenes in video games so how that worked then was the game was um it was text-based completely text-based but it was accompanied by these audio lectures on cassettes and they were film uh, recorded in the style of your court advisors so you were the ruler you had court advisors and you'd put a audio tape in and have a listen to what they were advising you and then to accompany that as well were images that you'd put on a slide projector. So you would play the game. You could play the game completely without these extras, but you could play it with um, the images. It was designed for a classroom environment, so you might have many students making a joint decision on how to allocate your resources, what to do, what steps to take next. So quite an educational game, really. So you've got media in the form of text, in the form of audio on tapes, in the form of images on a projector, which leads me to ask the question, is this the first ever multimedia video game? Multiple, multiple medias. It's multimedia, surely. I know we were just talking about Encarta, and that's normally what we think of when we say multimedia, programs on CD. Um, Or going back a little bit before that, some people have described the Amiga 1000 or the Amiga, as it was just called, as the first multimedia computer just because of its capabilities. But, you know, this by definition, sounds like multimedia to me. So a really interesting story. Um, Sounds like she was a lady who is very deserving of this award and well worth reading up on. John Romero, on the other hand, yes, we know John Romero. He started developing in 1979. He would co-founded software, bringing us games, including Commander Keen, Wolfenstein, or sorry, Dave, Wolfenstein for Dave, um, Doom, Quake. You all know the man and the games and probably agree that he's a very worthy recipient. Now, Chris, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you don't have any memories of 1964's Sumerian game to share with us. Not at all. I know you are a big first-person shooter, so Mm. why don't you just share some Romero or id memories with us? I'm a big first-person shooter. (laughs) Sorry, you're a big first-person... I've missed an important word there, haven't I? You're you're a big fan of first-person shooters. I am a first-person shooter. (laughs) That's that's not the right thing to say, I don't think. But anyway... (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, look, we all know them and we've talked about them to death, but there's good reason. And it is because they were, they were groundbreaking, they were pioneering, um, and they've just, you know, created the genre that many of us know and love. And it's a genre that's hard to get away from because, you know, even if you're not a first person shooter fan, you know, the, the, the choice story leg game of the day may be in first person mode. So that, that sort of the technology follows through. But for me, yeah, just to rattle off, obviously Wolfenstein 3D for, for myself was the the first game I would have played. Um, that would have been that was on my my 3860X, which was my first PC. But I only ever got my hands on the shareware levels. So and um and and the same thing with Doom. In all honesty, my first experience with Doom it was also on that same machine, and then later my 486SX. But it was the shareware levels only. Hmm. Well, I was just thinking about shareware. I mean, you say it like it's a bad thing, but she, there was a lot of content in, in oh, yeah. you know, there were a lot of levels. There was you 10 levels. 
you were so it was quite the first happily episode. never go mm. beyond the first episode and have a great time. Well, and that's what I was going to say. I, I played those for ages um, and I would find ways to extend it. So obviously you go through it on the lower levels, first of all, and then and this is what I love about both Wolfenstein. I can't remember the phrases, but instead of just, you know, easy, medium and hard, it's oh, yeah. something like, you know, Basically, making out you're a wimp if you yeah. if you choose the lower levels. Hurt me plenty and was one of them, wasn't it? it? Hurt yeah. me plenty and things like that. Yeah. And so, of course, once you've done it on say the, the normal, let's call it normal, the middle level, you, you have to just up the difficulty and then go through it again, and then up the difficulty again and go through it again. And then what I got, you know, when I'd done that a couple of times, then it was going into from the gaming that I've been used to in the eight bits and and the sixteen bits, where games were hard because you only had three lives. I would tell myself, okay, so save state only at the end of a level. That's the only time you can save. And you had to get from the beginning of level one to the end of level 10 without losing a single life. And if you didn't do that, then you have to start again. So just finding ways of making it harder and harder for yourself to to stretch those free 10 levels. And I had great fun um, doing that. After that, um, Quake. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's that's a massive leap. Again, in itself, yes, it's still a first-person shooter, but suddenly you could look up and down, and, and you could have levels over over the top of other level areas and stuff like that. So, even though we think of it as similar, there was some really big breakthroughs in that. And I'd argue, I know it's not one of his games; it was 3D Realms. I'd argue Duke 3D was the the better game, if I can put it that way, in inverted commas, in terms of the story, the humor, um, the level design, and all of that. The color palette. The colour palette, yes, <laughs> it had colour. <laughs> um, Quake is so dingy. I've got it again on the PS4. I played through Doom One and Doom Two on the PS4. I went to get back into Quake, and I can't, I can't push through it because it's so dingy. It's a great game, don't get me wrong, but it's so dark, so dingy. Those horrible grunting noises from around the corners, and I can't get my mind back into it. It's, it's a really <laughs> weird. I don't know what it is that's changed in me, but it's, yeah, it's just really gringy. Um, yeah. And of course, a fantastic soundtrack. But yeah, I, I, Duke Nukem, I preferred it as a gaming experience, and it's just such a laugh, Duke Nukem 3D. But the technology advances in Quake, it was just, once again, just leaps and bounds ahead of the competition. So yeah, what about yourself, yeah. Neil? Well, you mentioned your your jump from 8-bit to um, Wolfenstein 3D. And for me, um, I was happy on my Amiga in that period. And then mm. it was the jump from 16-bit to to doom on my on my 486 pc that was the the big eye opener for me it was like mm. okay this is the next generation here we are when it came to quake uh i was running a dx4 100 it could run quake it wasn't great this was uh, 3d um software rendered at the time um yeah it just about chugged along and as a technical achievement i felt pretty happy that i'd upgraded my pc to a point where i could play quake and i could enjoy it and i could appreciate it for its full 3d polygons and the you know the the technical achievement of the game like you i very quickly closed it and ran duke 3d it wasn't really until quake 2 that i really really got into it and thought this is a fantastic game and and quake 2 holds up today i played through it all again recently with the um the RTX version of Quake 2. Oh, yeah. So just, you know, allows you to play it at stupendously high resolutions compared to when it came out, and, and it looks fantastic. And it holds up well. The mechanics hold up well. You can have you can have a great deathmatch in the modern day on Quake 2. A nice, simple gameplay. Um, so, yeah, I'd say sort of Doom and Quake 2 were my highlights, not so much Quake. 
But just bringing us back to the the awards and Romero, we can't really mention Romero without mentioning his co-founder John Carmack. So if you're wondering about Carmack, he received the um, the Game Developers Choice Award in 2010. So he's had his award. Um, and then Romero would actually leave id Software uh, after a particularly brutal development cycle to get Quake made. Um, Carmack famously works worked, perhaps still works, 10 hours a day, six days a week. Wow. Um, and he would even take coding holidays. And that wasn't holidays to get a break from coding, but to focus more on coding. He would just <laughs> go on a, a, a coding holiday. Um, and I think when I interviewed John and Brenda Romero, I think they also said that they do the same. Um, I can't remember now, but I think that was something that they did as well. So, but either way, it it was a brutal development cycle. And it said that friction developed between the two, in part because Romero wanted Quake to be more stylized, more of a third person game. In some interviews, it's even mentioned that he wanted to have more Virtua Fighter style mechanics. So, obviously, in the arcades, Sega's Virtua Fighter was the big thing and the, the, you know, the big push for 3D arcade games, Virtua Racer, Virtua Fighter, mm. using that. Um, shaded, not so much texture mapped, but shaded, a smooth moving fighting mechanic in Virtua Fighter. He wanted Quake to be like that. So we may very well have had a third person karate style um, Quake. That would have been weird. Um, I'm trying to think of what game even comes close. MDK maybe, but that's texture mapped. Yeah, weird. Oh, yeah, I guess MDK is a good shout. Yeah, or, or yeah. Tomb, Tomb Raider. You know, oh, of course, <laughs> yeah. But again, <laughs> texture mapped. Yeah. Texture mapped, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. The technology evolved and texture mapping became more feasible. And Quake had texture mapping, of course, but yeah. he had that inspiration from Virtua Fighter. Um, so, you know, that that didn't really work out. He left it and um, he did try and create, I guess, a more stylized version of Cake in, in Daigatana. Cake, cake? Did I just call it Cake? Yes. Quake. Yes, you did. <laughs> Cake. <laughs> Beware the dangers of cake. Cake and cake um, two a, and cake three. A brass eye episode, if ever you need to watch one. Um, so Daikatana in two thousand that came out, which reviewed terribly, um, partly because it felt very nineties as we were looking forward into the new millennium of games. It was just sort of clinging on to some slightly older ideas. Gizmo is actually attacking me now. She's got both claws into my <laughs> arm down here. Um, <laughs> so um, Daikatana was perhaps a, a chance for him to express try some of those stylized ideas in quake but it it didn't really work out for him but what developer doesn't have a less than stellar game in their history though i think overall he's a very worthy recipient of the game but yeah what developer though doesn't have a a less than stellar game in their history though i I think overall romero is a very worthy recipient of the award and you'd, you'd struggle to argue against that um uh, on the other hand, Chris, I know you're a game developer. Uh, <laughs> some might argue. Is this an award that you hope to win someday? I thought I was going to win it this year, actually, Neil. Yeah, for oh, my yeah. for making one game in Shoot 'em Up Construction Kit. And what a game it uh, was. Oh, fantastic. I did try making other games. I tried making a text adventure game on my Amstrad Notepad NC100 and just filled the RAM just designing the, the, the levels, if you can call it that, in a text adventure game. It's as far as I got. So, yes, my crowning achievement is just the one game in Shoot 'em Up Construction Kit. And waking up today after a, a, a big day out yesterday without a hangover. So there you go. Those are my crowning achievements. I don't know where I pick up my awards, but, yeah. What about you yourself? Go. Maybe you need to adopt those 10-hour, six-day working weeks to, yes. to <laughs> keep yourself <laughs> making some games. 
well, maybe, maybe next year, Chris, we'll look out for that award. I, I might nominate you for the award. But um, yeah, Mabel Addis, John Romero, both fascinating and very different stories well worth looking into. You can find a link to gdconf.com in the show notes and, of course, anything else that we discuss on the show today. The words deluxe paint will instantly transport most Amiga users back to the good old days of drawing things, often poorly, pixel by pixel, with a nice limited palette and some simple tools to help us along the way. Originally published in 1985 to accompany the then-new Amiga 1000, it quickly became a pack-in title for later Amigas and came with pretty much every Amiga 500 ever sold. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, and as we've discussed before, with an art package coming free, even in most games packs, when A500s were sold on the run-up to Christmas, it really did help the argument that we would use this expensive bit of kit to do our homework. It was limited to a single layer and one undo, and any other mistakes would have to be fixed by hand by you, the digital artist. Well, now we have Photoshop and millions of undos and layers to mess around with, and it makes anyone look good. But if you're hankering for doing pixel art the hard way again, well, now you can. PYD Painter is a recreation of an early rendition of Deluxe Paint written in Python. It's the work of Mark Rael, and it's made available. He's been made it available to download from GitHub. And well, it looks like D-Paint. It seems to work like D-Paint. It's D-Paint. Neil, have you had a look at this? PYD Painter or Pi D Painter? Pi D Painter. Pi D Painter with the Pi Python. Python. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, we were talking about Encarta earlier being 30 years old. Well, this uh, Deluxe Paint first came out 37 years ago, so never mind Encarta. I mean, the, the last version of Deluxe Paint apparently was version 5.2, which was 28 years ago. So mm. Deluxe Paint died not long after uh, <laughs> Encarta. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned D-Paint on the Amiga. It was, of course, available also on the PC, although it was... Um, a staple part of game development for many 2D games on the Amiga. Um, not to be confused with P-Paint or Pro-Paint. Now, anyone who's seen the launch of the Amiga will see a paint package where Andy Warhol is, is painting Debbie Harry and using the flood fill tool, and it looks very much like Deluxe Paint, but actually that's Pro-Paint. Um, P-Paint, you can just see it on the title bar at the top of one of the screens when he's working on it. And for years, I thought that was, I just assumed it was D-Paint because yeah. D-Paint is the paint package of the Amiga, um, or certainly in that period. But um, no, that was that was Pro-Paint. So I'll be honest with you, Chris, um, I'm not about to give up Photoshop or Illustrator oh. for, for Pi D-Paint. Um, I, going way back into the late 90s, I had to take a training course in Adobe products, in particular Photoshop and Illustrator, so that I could properly support a marketing team who were using them, because who was I to offer them support on a product I didn't know myself? So I got mm. sent off on this course. I immediately found, once shown how to use the product, I immediately found it to be an incredible product. If you go in blind and just try and figure it all out, it can get confusing very quickly. But when you're taught how to use it properly, mm. where all the shortcuts are, Likewise, with Deluxe Paint, had a lot of shortcuts that even carried into later paint packages that copied the Deluxe Paint shortcut layout because people were so familiar with it. Well, I have a, my left hand is like a claw in the position of all the shortcuts of Adobe products. It just lands on my keyboard in that shape, <laughs> ready to hold down, you know, Shift, Control, Alt, X, V, C, you know, all the, all the different shortcuts that I might use. <clears throat> 
And those shortcuts carry across Photoshop, Illustrator, and then later Premiere, which has become mm. really valuable to me um, as a tool in, in running the YouTube channel. That's what I use as so, well, yeah. I'm not about to switch to Pidey Paint to get to actually get stuff done. <laughs> However, this product may well be a really great um, hobbyist product or just a, a creatives tool. Not sure mm. Photoshop can't be, but I see it as a, a, a as a tool to get things done professionally. If I wanted to do something creatively, and if I look at artists like Octavi Navarro, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, who create incredible what we now call pixel art but it's just art that uses pixels um art that i could never dream of producing a tool like this isn't going to help me to produce it because i don't have the creative skills i don't have the artistic skills to actually create that kind of imagery that's where pure artistic talent comes in but it might help someone so i'm glad that it exists but when it comes to deluxe paint it was really Paint 3 that i think i spent most of the time tinkering with um in particular, it had some sample photo fit faces included. Do you ever remember using these? You could drop a blank face in and then you could drag uh, the yeah. eyes in as a brush and the nose and you could create photo fit faces. And I, I think there was a scene in Robocop. Or, well, it wouldn't have been the same time. It would have been earlier. But there was a scene in Photocop where they did the, the photo fit on the computer and they were yeah. making up the faces to try and find the criminal. And it always felt like you were in a in a in robocop making faces (laughs) with that that, i think that's what i liked about deluxe paint 3 and (laughs) i remember those component faces because also on amiga format they did a deluxe paint tutorial and they gave you assets like that on the cover disc and one of them that's where it came from maybe that's where the assets came from because i have i have later gone back to deluxe paint in the modern day and gone well where are the faces i thought they were included so they Uh, must have come yeah maybe they came from it's on issue issue I think issue three. Um, if it's not issue three, it's issue four. Okay, quite an I was playing one. about with the discs just the other day, and yeah. There you go. So I spent a lot of time doing that. But if I'm honest, uh, where my artistic limits were in terms of creating pixel art, I, I, I was fully aware of them, and I would spend more time procedurally generating landscapes in Vista Pro, setting them to render while I was at school, making tracker music, you know, I found a lot more happiness in my happy little accidents in those packages. If I screwed something up in a tracker package, sometimes it would become a little um, little riff or something that I could incorporate into a tune. When it came to art, no amount of accidents could result in a decent image for me. It, it, it just wasn't true. in me. But um, yeah, you know, that's not to say I don't appreciate D-Paint and Pidey Paint. Why not? Nice. I um, you can You can kind of accidentally create art in something like deep because you've got that symmetry tool you know where you you just start drawing patterns and then it just does the yeah that's like a kaleidoscope uh, isn't it yeah or you know a digital paper doily (laughs) 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 that's what it ends up looking at you just throw more and more colors at it (laughs) it just it starts off looking pretty and then it just becomes a big colory mess um and then you just draw a rude shape in it Yes, always, always a routine. <laughs> well, for, for myself, I mean, I had uh, because my first Amiga was the the Batman pack. My first Amiga back then, it was my only Amiga. Really? What am I you talking never about? told us. Yeah, have I not mentioned the Batman? <laughs> have I not told you the story of the day my whole family went up to London? Anyway, um, but I, I actually did do homework in Deluxe Paint. So yeah, it's Deluxe Paint Two that came with the Batman pack. Um, but actually, I'm thinking about the homework that I did. So what I would—I I was really into technical drawing, as we called it back at school. Um, and so I would use Deluxe Paint to practice like shading techniques. 
and stuff like that. So rather than using the shaded fills, I would actually, you know, if I'd drawn a, a sphere, for example, I would then, you know, cut it up into sections and then go through the different shades of grey um, to to give it some depth to it, you know, a bit, a bit more shape to it. And then I would also, um, I quite like drawing grains in wood. Um, so I'd do the same in pixel. It was never, I'm, I'm really upselling it. It, it, it wasn't very good. <laughs> um, you know, if I was to find one of my old discs, uh, you wouldn't be impressed. But it was just fun. And then uh, I I'd, uh, do things like shadows and you realize that obviously in the wood, if the wood is sort of a brown, then instead of choosing a, a, a gray to do the shadow, wouldn't it? You choose a, a darker, a darker, a darker um, brown to, and, and you wouldn't feel the whole lot. You'd leave the grain in place so that it looks like a shadow on the wood so i quite enjoy, enjoyed doing that kind of thing i also drew a fighter i think i might have mentioned this before do i give duncan an image it's not my original drawing because obviously they're all on gone but i did recreate the image from memory a while back for one of uh, doug's competitions you know he does the digital art competition every year so i redrew and it, it looks as good as i drew it back in the day <laughs> let's put it that way but this sort of um uh, completely fictitious uh, stealth fighter that I did for that competition. The competition, that was in one of the magazines, that would have been a Amiga format. And the prize, why I put so much effort into it, was because the prize was a flying lesson, a one-off um, flying lesson. So you're muted, by the way, Neil. Um, so if you want to say, oh, wow. <laughs> say, oh, wow. So I actually, I did some hand-drawn art, you know, because I was into, again, technical drawing, side elevation, front elevation, plan. But then I did this digital picture. Um, of the of the stealth fighter in situ flying over a canyon so that's the image i recreated not long ago and then my nephew got what um the movies the movies amiga pack that came with uh days of thunder shadow the beast 2 oh the name has suddenly gone but anyway that came with deluxe paint 3 so the first thing i did when he got his amiga for christmas was take a copy of his deluxe paint three disc because that could actually do a couple of frames of animation depending on how many um uh how, how much ram you had you know obviously the more ram the more frames it could store but on a one mega mega you could get away with i think about up to three frames of animation so i played about with that again for some homework so yeah i spent quite a lot of time messing about in dpaint it's only recently, and I'm talking the last couple of weeks, that again, as I'm exploring the A1200, I installed Deluxe Paint 4 AGA. And obviously, you got the higher resolutions on the A1200, and that's all well and good. But what blew me away was the color palette, because when you first fire it up, it looks like you've got a similar amount of colors, and you go, okay, what's so impressive about that? And then you realize there's a forward and back button on the color palette. And you click next, and you've got a whole nother color palette. And you click next, and you've got a whole nother color palette. And I was thinking, surely if I start drawing something and then switch color palettes, it's going to change the colors that I've already used. No, these are all available colors to use in Deluxe Paint 4 AGA, and you can just flick through. It's just a way of saving screen real estate. So that actually blew me away, the amount of colors on a on a still image, obviously, that you can start to get away with once you get up to the AGA Amigas. It's really, really cool. Good. Well, I'm, I'm going to quote something that you've just said, Chris, which is, I quite like drawing grain in wood. That's that's quite <laughs> a quote of the show. 
That's what gives I a whole new meaning, whole new meaning to color palette. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> the notes, the show notes were changing in front of my very eyes, and I'm left I quite here like trying green in wood, trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you, you got into deep. Oh, screen gems, by the way, I think is the Amiga. That's pack it. Yeah, screen gems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um. Deep Paint 4, uh, I, I never really went beyond Deep Paint 3 because it just felt like you needed something more powerful than a stock 500 when you get to Deep Paint 4. It was a bit sort of laggy and sluggish. So Deep Paint 3 felt like the, the sweet spot. And I think other just as good, if not better, paint packages like personal paint and things like that came along for uh, the Amiga Power users who wanted it. So, um, yeah, Deep Paint had its day and uh, drifted away. So. One thing I did think as we as we're going through this actually is, you know, what why does this thing is this other than a project? But it's quite nice to have these PC um, native alternatives because sometimes, you know, what it's like. Much as we love the, uh, the 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 original kit, it's it's sort of a decision. Okay, I'm going to spend some time in D Paint on my A1200. I'm not really sure why, but if I just wanted to practice some techniques of pixel art in Deluxe Paint. I could just very quickly fire up this Python, Python version and do it that way. So again, let's say maybe I want to upskill and actually make a decent submission for, for Doug's competition, or then maybe I'll spend some time messing about in this before I actually commit to sitting at the Amiga and actually doing it for real on that. So I think that's a, that's a really good use case. Other than at the end of the day, these projects, they're just cool. They're just cool that somebody's thought to do this. So I just want to applaud Mark for his work on this. It's a wonderful project. And it highlights for me D-Paint's importance in the um, digital art evolution. And thanks to Pajaco6502 for telling us about it. But now let's all agree. All right. Listen very carefully. No one tell EA because they do actually still exist and you just never know. Okay, time now to review last week's question of the week, which was, we have talked about games which relied heavily on your imagination. Which games got your brain doing the heavy lifting when it came to creating the setting, the story, or even the background? So let's dip into our Reddit, which is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. If you'd like to participate in our question of the week, or if you'd like to submit new stories for us to uh, consider for the weekly show. So let's have a look. We've had um, some good answers here, some good meaty answers. I'll go from the top. I've got Generation Pixel as the, the top answer here. He says, oh, without a doubt, Rebel Star on the Specky, the birth of turn-based strategy and um, heavily Star Wars influenced in aesthetics. But when I was practicing, i.e. not playing a mate, I completely slipped into mentally and possibly vocally at times narrating the experience as I went along. And yes, I probably display this trait to this day. Pew, pew, pew. Take that, you <laughs> filthy imperialist. <laughs> oh, nice. Who hasn't done that? Who hasn't sat down? You know, because video games, especially in the 8-bit days, were such a solitary thing yeah apart from the occasions when your mate came over and you you know you were going head to head but the majority of your gaming was solitary mm. dimly lit room door shut just you and the machine filling the gaps yeah. i'm pretty sure yeah. i've narrated certain video games while playing them <laughs> yeah nice if you ain't rubbing you ain't racing <laughs> if you if you're going to play Days of Thunder, which you mentioned earlier on the Amiga, you need as much imagination as possible to make that game plain. And there's Neil's <laughs> quote for the day: "If you ain't rapping, you ain't racing." So on to the next one: Antiques for Geeks got you back. Um, 3D Monster Maze used to get me the silence, except for your heartbeat. 
As a child, it jump-started my imagination and gave me nightmares. Wow. Uh, but it was also some later games, even those with a clear world already defined, that got me uh, thinking. Despite its problems, I've always loved Epic from DID. I know the game you mean, yep, from mm-hmm. Ocean. And found myself building a far more detailed universe when playing, down to the economic, social, and political landscape of Rexon and human society. Uh, you could say I turned into an Andor before Andor even existed. Certainly, with added depth and cracks glossed over, Epic was uh, elevated to something very enjoyable. Yeah, that's a that's a nice take on it. Yeah, Epic was basically the space version of TFX. Used the same engine from DID. And F twenty nine wasn't it? Same as F twenty nine. It was pre TFX, uh, wasn't uh, it? I wasn't thought it? Epic was TFX. I thought uh, it was F twenty nine. Oh, dare I argue with the Neil? I thought on, it was F twenty nine Retaliator in space. Hang on, maybe maybe Epic was the earlier game because there was TFX and then there was the other space one. Um, which came in like a big red like box. Let's have a look. I've actually got it up both on the Yeah, Epic is Epic is the TFS TFX engine. Oh, is it? <clears> which really? in itself was an evolution of the F twenty nine engine. So Yeah, okay. You know. Because TFX seems so much better than Epic. Epic was Well, this is the thing. Epic was born <laughs> out of the demo scene, really, when we used to get these magnificent demos of space mm. scenes. And we used to think, why can't we have that in games? And then all of a sudden, we saw the trailers, the demos for Epic, the rolling demos, and thought, wow, this is it. This is when all of those skills from the demo scene come together to create an Epic game. And we just assumed it was going to have the scale of something like Elite with the graphics of of TFX and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and it came on CD as well, so all these multimedia elements that would that would be a part of it. it never really came together. It, it, it felt a little bit lacking, a little bit empty and rushed. So yeah. I think that's why it's so important that um, Antiques for Geeks used his imagination so much to fill in the gaps and found enjoyment out of the game. So... Well played. That's cool. <laughs> Very cool. Um, our third answer is from um, Taster de Murder. There's there's lots of numbers and letters. Uh, Taster de Murder. Taster de Murder, Chris. <laughs> Taster de Murder. <laughs> the, uh, the Hobbit text adventure. Even when compared to text-only based games, The Hobbit really got your imagination going. Loved the way the characters would continue even when you weren't typing. It inspired me to read more. Then reading Lord of the Rings sent me into a coma and it was quickly back to computer games. <laughs> Very honest. Uh, yeah, text adventures come up a huge amount yeah. in this kind of conversation, obviously, because you are filling in the imagery. Um, but it, quite a contrast to using, say, your imagination to fill in the gaps in Epic, which was a very visual game, mm. uh, to a text adventure. It just goes to show that it, this same technique, if you like, can be applied across many genres, many games, a, a, a large period. And you can even do it today, depending on if the game gives you the space to use your imagination. As I said last week, it's very much about storytelling. Mm. Um, lots of other great answers from Pajaco talking about the BBC Micro and uh, Elite, so space exploration and filling in the gaps there. Um, what else have we got? Uh, someone also mentions uh, 
post-apocalyptic stress disorder, which was a Monkey Island-style adventure game. Hmm. I've come across that one before. Uh, Grand Theft Auto Vice City, suggested by Old Computers 1969. And MyLap64 talks about Starglider on the Hmm. spectrum. So lots of great answers, which leads us now to this week's question of the week. Chris, would you like to go ahead and read that out? I will indeed. So this week's question of the week is, who else in the retro scene deserves a Lifetime Achievement Award and why? It doesn't have to just be a developer. It could be, you know, developers, pixel artists, maybe musicians, or anyone in the retro scene that maybe runs a podcast, is bald, whatever, something like that. Any, are you, anybody you want to... Are you just trying to get yourself nominated? Is award. that what's happening here? <laughs> part, of, part of Jack. Okay, so you just want a whole thread justifying why you should award. get an award. Yes, so this week's question of the week, which award should Chris get? No. <laughs> no, anybody in the retro scene, you know, from, from developers of days, days Gone By, artists, whatever, or anybody in the modern retro scene, who should get an award? And why? Yep. So let us know in the subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. And by this time next week, Chris is going to have made a certificate in Pidey Paint and we are going to put the winner's name on it and we are going to track them down on uh, Twitter (laughs) or find their email and we are going to present them with Chris's hand-drawn award, Lifetime Achievement Award. I'm going to do it on the Amiga. That's what I'm going to do. And then figure out go. how to get it off cross onto my PC. Wow, yeah, I know how I do that. Stunned yep. with the quality. Yeah. Uh, as always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our show. We hope you have a great weekend. Dave will be back with us next week. Dave will be back with us next week, Chris. Will he? Yes, Dave will back. definitely be wet back with us yeah. next week. We're said with a rising infliction as a question. <laughs> <laughs> Dave will be back with us next week. Hmm. Until then, <laughs> take care, everyone. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agima, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.